listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast by Dr. T. Michael W. Halcom, Dr. Frederick J. Long, Dr. Mario Melendez, Dr. Jennifer Noonan, and J. M. Smith. Welcome and enjoy. Well, I want to welcome you back to our Ephesians Greek reading group, and we're looking at uh, OneNote, and inside of OneNote I have the SPLGNT color-coded. And I have underneath there uh, a watermark template for some semantic diagramming. So we'll do some semantic diagramming uh, today. Last time we were looking at 2, 1 through 3 and how it is a long suspended clause. And it really is dependent on the clause, main clause, which restarts down in verse 5, and more properly with the subject in verse 4. And that's where we, we left off. Now I have these zones here, which I can align different sentence constituents. And this first zone is the initial conjunction, which is de. So de helps us re-pick up uh, the, the main line here, and then oteos is the subject, and what I'm going to do is find the main verb, which is sun e zoo piesen, he made alive. And I'm going to move this over to this zone right here, which is the verb zone. So you can see down here the watermarks, initial conjunction, subject, and then a verb zone. So this is the main sentence, God made alive, and then the you, uh, us is the uh, subordinate clause, which is really elaborating who, who is made alive and that is the us. So God made us alive with Christ. And so this you in verse 1, by the time that it's gone through its different explanation and elaboration through these two prepositional clauses, in, s, in, is, Uh, by the time it's gone through this process, the umas becomes an emis. We also, and so that you have emas as the direct object of he made alive. He made us alive. So God, and then we have a lot of elaboration of, of who God is. Now God, uh, first of all, is described as being rich in mercy. Now the own is, we could understand it probably as either ad adjectival, as modifying theos, but I think it's adverbial or circumstantial. And I'm going to put it as modifying sen down here. And so I put it three spaces over from the front God being rich. And what is he rich in? 
Well, what is he rich with respect to? Well, he's rich with respect to mercy, being rich or wealthy, plusios, in mercy. So in mercy is describing the kind of wealth that God has or what, what, what does it mean that he is rich? He's rich with respect or in the realm of or in, in the manner of mercy. So God being rich in mercy. And why is he rich in mercy? Because of his great love. And so this diatein polein agapein is modify of two is modifying this this verbal assertion of the participle, the circumstantial participle. And then the love is given further modification by this relative pronoun clause with which he loved us. And so this is uh, indicating some level of redundancy because the love is being further modified. I'm going to put the modifying phrase underneath the article, even though the article is also modifying agapain. Of two is modifying agapain as well. The his. And so you have uh, this love being modified also by polain, which should have a gray highlight because it's a quantitative word, his great love. So because of his great love, this is modifying the being rich and rich in terms of mercy. So God being rich in mercy, why? Because of his great love. And then you have an elaboration which he loved us, with which he loved us. And this would be a, a uh, redundant direct object in a sense, that which is going back to love. And uh, he loved us with this great love. So this, this love which he, with, which, with, which he, with which he loved us. And so there's a lot of stress on love because you're getting this this seemingly unnecessary relative pronoun clause, modifying love even further, repeating the stem, agapesen. Uh, and so there's really a lot of stress on love. And so this love is an undergirding of God's mercy and God being rich in mercy. And we need to understand love here because love is... is is evaluation. So God, when he sees humanity, when he's, he understands what humanity is, how he's made humanity, he loves us. He's lo he loves us. He's created us in his image. And even despite all of our sinfulness, which 2, 1 through 3 describes, and we've been looking at that, and the elaboration through these two relative pronoun clauses, and it gets really bad, even we're we're walking in our desires of our fallen flesh and the we're doing the wills of our flesh and flesh has to do with our life independent of god the wills we're divided we become conflicted so we're doing these things and in the end we become children that are angry or wrathful children either way we become people who have anger issues or are 
at odds with one another. So in this fallen state, God still loves us. And so in, the, in, in this love and out of this love, be really because of this love, dia, dia with the accusative means um, uh, grounds or reason. So on account of or because of this, God being rich in mercy, this is the next step. So love leads to mercy and he's rich in mercy. Then this leads us to, to leads him to then making us alive. Now, <clears throat> here we pick up uh, a ke, and this ke is probably meaning even while. So this ke is is a sensitive and provides another framework. So the own is one framework. So this is a circumstantial participle that's located before the main verb. So it's called a pre-nuclear participle. So this is providing an important framework. And it's really a framework of God's, of God's nature, of God. Who God is, what motivates God, what is he like? And another framework is our framework as human beings who are dead because of our sins. And so here we have to um, understand that precisely when we're dead in sins, as we're dead in sins, God is loving and merciful and acting. So this ke is probably should be blue. I'm going to put it in blue highlight, meaning that it's functioning really like an adverb. So I'm going to change that color to a light blue. Even while, while we are dead, God makes us alive. So what I'm doing here is just aligning this participle uh, as explaining more about who we are while we are dead. And why are we dead? We're dead because of the trespasses. So this tis paraptomacine, so the tis paraptomacine is a dative of cause. It's, it's why we have become the basis, the reason why we have become dead. So while we are dead in our trespasses. So this is a pre-nuclear subordinate clause, circumstantial, providing another framework. So we have two framework participles placed before the verb. One describing God's wealth in terms of his, his, his richness, in terms of mercy because of his love. That's framework number one. And framework number two, which picks back up two, one through three, is that we're dead because of sins. And so there's, there's another framework. 
But in spite of these, or because even in view of these frameworks then, though, God makes us alive with Christ. And uh, he throws in, you can see that you have these M dashes here. This expression is grammatically unconnected to the surrounding environment. It's like a little, well, it's not a little aside, it's a big aside because we're going to see that this is anticipating what he will argue in verse 8, what he argues explicitly, and that is that we are saved, you are saved by grace. So he can't quite wait, I guess. He's, he's knowing where he's going. And so this is a bit of a pause, and it, in a sense, resets our thinking. So it's a pause and reset, and this may allow for him to then, it may, in a sense, offset what's coming next, and that is, namely, that he's raised us. And so you have uh, a initial coordinating conjunction, ke, and so you have a de, you know, moreover, God made us alive with Christ, and he raised us with Christ, and we're going to get another ke, he's sat us, he's sat us down in the heavenly realms, so now we're really starting to go here, in the discourse, we're getting these verbs and some clarity begins popping in terms of the grammar structure. The only thing that's offset is is this, this M dash. Kariti este sesos mini. You are saved by grace. And this grace is a means, probably dative of means. And I'm going to put this at the front because Grammatically, it's, an, it's almost like an aside, but we can, um, you know, we could mark it as its own sentence. If we did, we'd want to put the, the este sesos mini in the verb zone. The karati would be a dative of means, which I put as a modifier. So if we were going to diagram it, we'd put it right there but we'd also want to understand that it's grammatically disconnected and it's it's independent and it becomes a really important affirmation as we'll see because of what comes in in, in verse 8 it is a paraphrastic construction with a verb of ini and a perfect tense participle that is middle passive in formation and so there's some stress on the final state here you are having been saved. So by grace, you are saved. And so it's stressing the salvific state that we are in. And so what, you know, in, in terms of our mental conception of the discourse, this, this affirmation that we're saved by grace breaks up this otherwise nice repetition and list of three verbs that begin with soon. Soon, soon, soon. 
and connect us to Christ. He's made us alive in Christ. He's raised us up, presumably with Christ, understood. And he's sat us with Christ. And then we get an explanation of where that is. He sat us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So what is achieved by putting we're saved by grace? I think, I think what's achieved is that he's explaining that us being made alive with Christ is our, part of our salvation status. So as we're experiencing new life right now, as we're made alive with Christ, that this is a part of our salvation, our state of being saved. And that's important because a lot of times we think of salvation only as a future dimension, but is, it is, there's a present dimension of it. And there's an enlivening that already begins to happen with us in Christ. And so when we become believers, we start to experience that life. And that's a life that Christ had as he was a human being. That life is shared with us. And of course, that's mediated through the Holy Spirit and it's experienced in community. But this is a part of God's salvation for us. And it's by grace. Grace is what energizes this and brings us to being. But we're also going to be raised up and seated and this can be confusing to people because the aorist tenses here, and these are aorist active indicatives, third singulars, it may suggest that this has already happened. And if that's the case, then that's kind of maybe Paul's thinking metaphorically. Or people will say he's thinking positionally in terms of our position we have a representation up in heaven or in the heavens. So we've experienced life, but we have this position of being raised up and then we're also seated, past tense or aorist, viewed as a whole in a non-temporal way. We're seated with him in the heavenly realms. But I think Paul is describing kind of a process of salvation. And for some people, this would be past tense. So it's true that we've been made alive in Christ, past tense, those who are believers. But for those believers who have died in the Lord, what's happened to them? Where did they go? And Paul, I believe, is affirming here is that they've experienced a kind of resurrection is it a final bodily resurrection? I don't think it's the final resurrection, but he does say they've been raised up, that we've been raised up. I think it's more than just positional. I think it's, I think it's ontological, maybe even metaphysical in some way that we're resurrected or we're at least raised up in some form. And not only that, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Now, this idea of being seated with Christ is found elsewhere. In Matthew 19, uh, Peter is saying, you know, hey, we followed you. What are we going to receive? And Jesus, you know, says you're going to receive 
more fam we you know we've left everything to follow you and he says well you're going to gain brothers now and sisters but also when the son of man sits on on his throne you will be sitting with me uh, judging the 12 tribes and so the question is 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 has that happened yet well i would i would argue that his ascension to God's right hand already has happened. And, and I would say that this has occurred as he's done this, at, this has happened as he is the Son of Man. Now, if you go to Daniel 7, where the Son of Man passage is coming on the clouds, the directionality of the Son of Man is up. He is going up to be receiving this power and authority and and this is what i think paul sees in ephesians 1 is that god has raised him up and then has seated him in the heavenly realms he's already affirmed that in 120 and 21. so now he's simply saying that believers also positionally but more than positionally when they die we go to be with him there now this idea is also found in revelation where you have the seven letters, and in each of the letters, in chapters uh, 2 and 3, they end with a promise to the one who overcomes. Now, climactically, the last one is to the one who overcomes. I will give them to sit with me on my throne as I have overcome and sat on my father's throne. So has Jesus overcome? Is he sitting at God's right hand? Where is Jesus now? And in the book of Hebrews, it's affirmed five times that he's seated at the right hand. Okay, so I believe that's where he is now. And so where do believers go when we die? Well, we belong to Christ. We're part of his body. He's our head. I think it's a real easy understanding, a real easy theological conclusion that we go where Christ is. And if Christ has died and been raised again and ascended to God's right hand on a throne in a place of ruling power, since all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, then this would include that this would suggest that believers, when we die, we go to be with him. And this is kind of the vision that we get in Hebrews 12. If we go to Hebrews 12, it talks about we, where have we come? We've not come to Mount Sinai, but rather we've come to Mount Zion. And what's happening at Mount Zion? Well, it's a huge party. It is a festal gathering of angels and spirits made perfect, and Jesus is there. And so this is the fellowship that we're a part of and continue in some form, some raised up form when we die, we go to be with the Lord. And this is what Paul is increasingly thinking about. And you can track it in his letters. So if you go to his earliest letters in 1 Thessalonians, it seems like the, uh, the parousia, the coming, the resurrection is far off. Now it may happen soon, but it's, it's stated kind of third person and, you know, distant. But as you get to 2 Corinthians, he starts talking about a heavenly body that the Lord is preparing for us. 
It's getting a little bit closer. He's got a place for us. Well, then you go to Philippians, which was written just before Ephesians, and he's like, I don't know what's better, to stay here and keep on working or to die and be with the Lord. So Paul is thinking about these things more and more, and Ephesians is watershed in this regard to for him to explain this reality more and more, which has become more and more, I think, on his mind as he's getting closer and closer to his own death and going to be with the Lord. Yes. Yeah, so the question is, why would Paul add this, by grace you are saved? I think it's because it is moving towards uh, verse 8, which is a thesis statement. So 8, 9, and 10, I argue, when you go to Ephesians, uh, across Ephesians, that these verses are the thesis statement for the rest of the book. So grace is a major theme that Paul showcases in chapter 3, and faith and the sacrifice of God's gift and and that there's no works that can save us. That's the rest of chapter 2. And faith, uh, so, so basically 8 and 9 begin to outline two, the rest of chapter 2 and 3, circling around grace, faith, salvation, and God's gift. And that God's gift is a sacrifice, and we'll get to that in a moment. Whereas 10, verse 10, is focusing on good deeds and walking a certain way, peripateo. And this is a theme that is picked up in the rest of chapters 4, 5, and 6. Five times this verb peripateo occurs. And so when we come to 8, 9, and 10, the other thing that we begin to notice is that there's a lot of definitional statements with the verb imi. You are saved. And this is not from yourselves. The esteem is implied. It is God's gift. So notice that, that Paul Paul's grammar becomes all of a sudden very terse and, and concise and definitional. Okay, that's because he's working out his thesis, what he's going to be arguing in the rest of the letter. Then he says, we are his workmanship. There you go, a definition again. We are God's creation or workmanship. And then there's this very large theme of being created or founded, founded as like a people group, a people group founded. And this idea of founding like a colony, a city, a cult, a nation is a very broad concept in the, in, in the Mediterranean world. And for us to translate this, this verb, which is katizo, uh, which is a verb that has to do with, the, in, the, in the Greco-Roman world, with founding of a cult or people, a nation. To translate as created misses that sense, which is very prevalent in the ancient world. And if you have any questions about that, just start doing some searches of this on inscriptions and in the Greek literature. Go ahead and look at Liddell Scott Jones, and you'll see that this term, katizo, has more than just the, the Jewish sense of to create out of nothing. 
but has it but it has especially to do with founding of a people group a nation or a city and so what's happened is that we're being described as being founded in Christ Jesus and so what that means is that he is the founder <laughs> and epi has to do with the basis upon which not purpose but the basis on good deeds and so God is establishing his people as his poema his opus his work and this is how Rome actually was described by Ovid uh, Ovid describes the or Ovid I should say Ovid and Virgil they described the the Roman people as as the work the opus that is founded by their religious and political leaders Augustus or Aeneas and so there's there's foundation mythology that Paul is tapping into or a kind of a logic a kind of cultural political logic and the gods are always in view they're giving a political ruler who because of his meritor meritorious deeds or his cults prowess or his his benefactions well this is this is the language that that Virgil and Cicero and Ovid are using Paul is speaking into this logic except he's saying that Christ is our political head and there have been good deeds that he did and were actually before him that the prophets were calling us to and that his law called us to but Christ brought to fulfillment and then he really says that God has prepared these in advance this is not a surprise God laid out what his will was in Torah to his people through the prophets. Jesus brings us to fruition, the Sermon on the Mount. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He's fulfilling them. And then he's called us uh, to walk in them. And this is what it means to be the community reformed around Christ as our political head. And so this verb of walking actually organizes chapters four through six. And there's five sections that begin or nearly begin in the first couple of verses with this verb peripateo. So for that reason, um, we are saved. You are saved by grace. Paul wants to get there because it's the start of his thesis statement. And it wants to, he wants to ground all of this being made alive, being raised up and seated. This is all part of God's salvific purposes. That makes a little bit more sense when I'm thinking about it because as soon as we link it to Roman civil identity, yes. what it means to be a Roman, yeah. Yeah. I'm seeing Christian civil identity being yeah. earlier, it needs to be an exemplary of good works. It seems like yep. that top one is just starting yep. out. Yep. It is. It oh. is. Yeah. And once you once you see it, it makes sense. And if you read this literature more broadly, which you've been doing, you're like, this is really important. This is ubiquitous. Uh, this is seen again and again at different scales. I mean, there's there's like cults, there's like little institutions, but then it's all the way to like the Roman state <laughs> and Aeneas with the Roman people. And then Augustus kind of refounding that that state again after, you know, a, a century of murderous, rebellious uh, infighting among the Romans. So Augustus comes and, and sets it right again sets it right so uh, but yeah this yeah it's a really good question so we're, we're getting right there uh, to this 
very important point that uh, God has, has raised us and seated us in the heavenly realms. Now, we could stop and look at the Gemma Augustea, and I'm going to open this up. Now, what is the Gemma Augustea? Gemma Augustea is, a, is an artifact that shows the ideology of, of Roman rule. And so this is uh, something I have it, uh, it's, it dates to around 10, AD 10, so while Augustus was still alive. And it's, it's a onyx. I have this in my Koine Greek grammar just as an illustration of what it means to be seated in the heavenly realms. Because, in fact, that's what's depicted here, is that Augustus is seated in the heavenly realms. And relatives, this is probably Germanicus, I believe. And on the right here you have Oceanus and Gaea, uh, so the ocean and the earth. With a cornucopia, this is abundance, that he's brought peace to land and sea. And this woman with this kind of wall as a crown is Oikumene. Oikumene is a personification of the inhabited world. So Oikumene means inhabited world. Oikumene is crowning Augustus. Now Augustus is godlike. He is holding Zeus's scepter. This is Jupiter's eagle. Jupiter's eagle is, is uh, indicating that he is Zeus-like. He's obtained this rule because Jupiter or Zeus has given it to him. And who is this sitting next to him? It's Roma. It's the personification of the Roman people. And so here is the Emperor Augustus with his consort Roma ruling sitting as gods in the heavenly realms and this ideology of being seated in the heavenly realms is found in Cicero's uh, Somnia uh, Scipionis the dream of Scipio this ideology it's found in other places uh, Virgil etc I've tracked this in an article <laughs> this ideology now down below we have the world and we have the conquest of the world and the barbarians who are depicted in the long hair. And here's a trophy of their armor being erected. These are a couple of deities helping in the work down here. But you can see the Roman soldiers who are putting up the trophy. And uh, this person, this barbarian, long hair, bearded, is in supplication, you know, surrendering and supplicating for mercy. And so this, this gamma is just an artifact that depicts a whole ideology which is expressed in literary works, in monumentation, in cult, parade, theater across the Roman Empire, and even especially Asia Minor, an area that was particularly interested in honoring the emperor and imperial family with cults and sacrifice. All right, so, so Paul is saying actually there's another reality that is far surpassing all other rule, authority, power, and lordship. Does that sound familiar? That's what he argues in chapter 1, that he's seated in the heavenly realms far above. So if we go back to chapter 1, he argues that 
that that he seated Christ is seated at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all of these other potential positions and powers whatever it might be whatever they might be named every name being named not only in the present age but in the one that's coming so Christ is in the seated position at the right hand seated at the right hand in the heavenlies far above and guess what we get to join him positionally and I think at death that we get to go be with him in the heavenly realms seated with Christ and this is a sign in order that it would be demonstrated in the present times the surpassing wealth of his grace towards us so the purpose of this threefold action of God to make alive to raise us up and to seed us is in order that he would demonstrate in the present time the present ages demonstrate what the surpassing wealth so I'm going to put that there now the the purpose clause the ena works with endixite endixite back here again so I'm just worrying about how we come to arrive um, in Christian theology that we don't believe in works when it is at the very foundation of our cultural identity. So yeah, the question is, why are we downplaying good works when it's at the very center of who we are, what we are about? Good question. And that's why my one of my student, Luke, Luke Post, just wrote his dissertation on good works. And Paul, he studies it, and he defended it. It's Dr. Post now. He's graduated. So his dissertation should be in Asbury, you know, should be available on good works in Paul. And that's not the exact title, but it's uh, it's something like that. So yeah, no, it is it is very important, hugely important, yeah. And as Wesleyans, we understand that. As Wesleyan believers, we understand that good works are important part of our salvation. Not that we do them to earn our salvation, but it comes out and is a part of our salvation. Of course, grace is empowering that. So in the coming ages, so he. He's accomplished all this, and he seats us up there with Christ so that in the coming ages, his grace would be manifest, so that he would manifest his surpassing grace. So the riches of God's grace is uh, the surpassing wealth of his grace. So you think that the emperor has a lot of wealth, and by the way, the emperor owned all of Egypt, he had a lot of money. Look at the look at the Augustus's uh, good deeds, the raids guest day, August uh, of Augustus. You can look at those, find those online. The the uh, good deeds of Augustus. He had a lot of money. Doesn't compare to God's grace and wealth. And so this is going to be demonstrated to us in kindness. Look at these modifiers piled up. In kindness to us in Christ. So all these modifiers are modifying demonstrate. They're going to be demonstrated in kindness 
for us in Christ. Yeah, we'll pick up here, 8, 9, and 10 next time. Thank you. Wow. Interested in growing your ancient language skills but not sure where to start? Glossa House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glossa House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glossahouse.com today. Glossa House, language resources for the global community.